Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Cure Epilepsy. Today, I'm happy to welcome a longtime member of the Cure Epilepsy community, Dr. Steve White. Dr. White has been involved in epilepsy research for more than 40 years. He is currently a professor and chair of the Department of Pharmacy at the University of Washington. Previously, Dr. White spent 30 years as a faculty member at the University of Utah, where he also led the Epilepsy Therapy Screening Program. Additionally, Dr. White was Cure Epilepsy's first research director and has served on several advisory groups, including the Infantile Spasms Initiative and the Post-Traumatic Epilepsy Initiative. He continues his long association with Cure Epilepsy as a member of our Scientific Advisory Council. He's here today to talk about how his perspective on epilepsy and epilepsy research has been shaped by his personal experience as an epilepsy patient. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been so looking forward to this conversation with you. One of the main reasons being that you have been involved in epilepsy and epilepsy research for 40 years. You are a trove of information. What initially got you interested in epilepsy and epilepsy research? Well, thank you, um, Kelly, and and please, Steve is fine, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Noted. Okay. Um, you know, like like many of us, uh, I think my mentor had a huge role in defining, you know, my interest in epilepsy and uh, getting me going there. I, I was honored to work with one of the one of the greats in basic epilepsy research uh, during my graduate studies, Dixon Woodbury, and um, you know he took me under his wings and uh, introduced me to the community back in in the 1980s and uh, and got me sort of motivated towards you know the underlying biology of epilepsy as well as basic mechanisms of anti-seizure drugs and uh, the other thing I, a notable thing i would say is that one of my um, thesis committee members was a pediatric epileptologist in salt lake at the time jack madsen and uh, i just saw how passionate he was for his patients and how much his patients and their families loved him as a caregiver and i just felt like this is a community that i'd like to be a part of i love that so much and we're so grateful to have had you you know you are both a researcher and an educator. Can you tell us what your focus has been in both those areas? Sure. In my early days and in, in, uh, during my graduate training and postdoc, it really was around the basic mechanisms uh, of anti-seizure medicines, trying to understand how they worked on neuronal cells as well as uh, in networks. and um, then as I transitioned into um, the what's now called the Epilepsy Therapy Screening Program, it, it was at the time called the Anticonvulsant uh, Drug Development Program at Utah, um, I became very, very interested in animal seizure and, and epilepsy models and how they could be used for identifying and characterizing new drugs that 
that might ultimately be used for the treatment of epilepsy. And so, and so I'm going to interrupt you right there just for a moment, just for um, the, the lay listener here. When you talk about an animal model um, and why that is important, what specifically does that mean, the, the model? Well, we've been fortunate um, really over the last 75 years to have models that um, you know can can help to model the human disease for so this would be a, a mouse or a rat or something along those lines that models the disease and then you can test your theories or these uh, pharmacological uh, substances on the animal model to see how they work Exactly. And most, if not all, of the anti-seizure drugs that have come on the market have been tested in one of these rodent seizure models or epilepsy models. And that sort of gives the proof of concept that a drug is getting into the brain and has an ability to block a seizure or stop a seizure. And, you know, for for most most of the time, it's very predictive of outcome when a drug goes into the clinic. Unfortunately, it doesn't always predict efficacy in that highly refractory patient population. And that's where we need new models. And I've spent a lot of time over the course of my career trying to help develop new models and bring them into the testing um, protocol to see if we couldn't find better drugs for that, that particular population. And what have you focused on in terms of an educator? You know, from an educating perspective, I think it's largely trying to get students uh, interested in epilepsy and trying to help them really recognize the need that's out there and the importance of understanding epilepsy at a level that um, you can take new therapies forward for the patient. It doesn't take much once a person begins to identify with a patient or a caregiver how important research is in epilepsy. And so from an education perspective, I like to try and, and make sure that that link is made and the student has an opportunity to look into the lives a little bit of, of the patient with epilepsy and, and perhaps walk in their shoes and, and just understand how important it is that the work they're doing um, may ultimately lead to better therapies. It's such an important point, and it's one I don't think I necessarily realized is just how separated sometimes the research community is from the patient population. And unless there is, you know, an effort made um, by one party or the other that, you know, the researchers may not have ever met someone that their research actually directly affects. And, so, and I think that's so important for that connection to be made. And that sort of leads me perfectly into my next question about Cure Epilepsy, this organization that you became familiar with several years ago and which has brought us together today has, you know, a decades long history of bringing researchers and the patient population together. 
how did you first hear about Cure Epilepsy? And what motivated you to start working with us? You know, I first became aware of Cure Epilepsy back in 2000 at the White House initiated um, conference on curing the epilepsies. And at that meeting, I heard uh, Susan Axelrod speak for the very first time. And, um, you know, I listened to her impassioned plea, her story, um, and, and their journey with Lauren um, over the years and their frustration, if you will, with not having answers and not being able to get those answers. I think she changed the dialogue in the epilepsy research community. We went from thinking about finding therapies for stopping seizures, which still remain a significant need, to beginning a conversation around how do we find a cure? How do we find a disease-modifying therapy? And I think she really, in a very impassioned way, um, called out the community and said, we need to be looking beyond the symptomatic treatment. We need to be thinking cures and disease modification. And that really has changed the landscape. I think cures should be proud of themselves for, you know, taking that leadership position and changing the conversation. So now we know how you first um, became aware of Cure Epilepsy. I would love to hear how you have contributed to the organization. You've been quite a resource uh, to Cure Epilepsy over the years. Thank you, Kelly. I think my uh, my initial interaction was um, serving as a reviewer on some of the um, grants that came in or letters of intent and sort of advising on what what looked like promising research. Um, I was also fortunate to you know have received um, an an early grant from Cure. And um, so I've, I've been a funded investigator. And, and then in 2010, 2000, early 2011, um, you know, I, I was fortunate and honored to uh, be invited to serve as, as the research director for CURE as uh, they were looking to transition their research a little bit. and. Uh, I served in that capacity from 2011 to 2015. And um, most recently, I, I joined the Scientific Advisory Council. And I'm, I, again, I'm just honored to, to be a part of this. Hi, this is Brandon from Cure Epilepsy. Since 1998, Cure Epilepsy has raised over $78 million to fund more than 260 epilepsy research projects in 16 countries around the world. Learn what you can do to support epilepsy research by going to cureepilepsy.org. Now back to Seizing Life. Now, within the last few years, epilepsy has entered your life in a far more personal way. Can you share that journey with us? Yes, it's uh, 
There's there's an awful lot of irony in in the whole story, if you will. In 2010, uh, May of, of 2010, I had a a generalized tonic clonic seizure uh, after returning home from a, a trip on the East Coast, and just a couple of days prior to that, my wife had returned. Wife and I had returned from Israel, so there was. You know, I was pretty sleep deprived, pretty stressed at the time. Um, got home from that trip back east and, uh, you know, with a horrible headache. And I laid down and a few minutes later had this generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And, and I woke up in a little community hospital not too far from our home in Salt Lake and, uh, I don't know, two or three hours later when I sort of the lights were starting to come back on, I had been informed that I'd had a seizure and uh, and that that was kind of the start of my journey. Um, I was told a couple of times by the attending that night, don't worry, everybody gets their first seizure for free. I realized enough about epilepsy to realize that there probably wasn't uh, a free seizure regardless of your age and uh, so i had an mri done the next morning and and that led to the identification of a uh, benign brain tumor and uh, two weeks later that was being resected and um, and it was about 18 months after the resection when i started having focal seizure events and uh, started being treated uh, for those. Uh, I'm I'm very, very fortunate in that, you know, my seizures are well controlled by the medicine that I take. And, um, you know, I, in that regard, I I feel fortunate um, to, to have benefited from the the miracles of, of modern science and drug discovery and and to be seizure free. I also imagine that having a pharmacological degree and expertise helped significantly in your journey as well, sort of. Um, I mean, I can only imagine that uh, how well you were able to advocate for yourself and and how closely you were able to work with your doctor. How do you think that helped you? Oh, I think uh, it was incredibly beneficial. And I have to say that, you know, by virtue of my understanding of the disease and knowing the right questions to ask and, and the right people to, to get access to, I probably had more access Um than a lot of people. And, and that's something that I feel guilty about in some regards, but I also feel overwhelmingly disappointed that not everybody has full access, despite how good our healthcare is in this community and in this country. I think a lot of people lack access. Yes, it's not a fair system, to be sure. Um especially when there's not enough doctors and entirely too many patients. I know that you were diagnosed in 2010. However, you did not choose to publicly share your diagnosis until about 2019. In fact, at an American Epilepsy Society conference, go big or go home, I guess, 
Um, talk to us about why, A, why you didn't share your diagnosis earlier and what motivated you to finally share it and in such a big way at the AES conference. It's an interesting question, Kelly, and one that I've, I've thought about a lot and I thought about certainly a lot before I made the announcement in 2019. I'm not proud of the fact that it took me so long um, to have this conversation with the community, particularly, you know, knowing how important it is for people to talk about uh, their journey and to be willing to share their journey. Um, Years before, I had overheard a conversation with Susan Axelrod and, and uh, Dan Lowenstein talking about, you know, the importance of people, if you will, um, sharing their story and taking ownership of, of their epilepsy. And I kept saying to myself after that for, you know, probably four years, I, I need to do this. I need to to be able to come out and talk about this. And um, what drove me to, to that night was uh, I went with uh, another faculty member and a couple of dozen pharmacy students um, as part of a Global Brigades medical mission to Ghana two years in a row. And uh, on that, those two trips, I spent my time with students interviewing patients and caregivers and, and really learning about their struggle there and the treatment gap that exists in Ghana. And um, there was a moment of, if you will, feeling of hypocrisy, if you will, uh, knowing that, you know, I had a secret I wasn't willing to share, but I was willing to ask other people to share their journey. And I think it was that moment that really said, I've got to talk about this. I've got to free myself of this burden. Did you experience any um, stigma or bias from anyone afterwards? No, I, I had absolute full support. Both my wife and I were um, really taken aback by that, you know, the support of people that came up at the, at the reception, but, you know, even subsequently to that. Um, and it was just, I can't think of a better place in a better community to have uh, had the conversation with initially. I will say, uh, you know, as an aside, when I had that conversation with the Cure community in 2019, there was a huge relief taken off of me. Uh, the ability to talk openly and freely about something that I've kept secret for a decade uh, was freeing, if you will. I control it now, it doesn't control me. And if in some small way uh, that helps others, um, mission accomplished. That's so important, owning it. Um, and just, you know, we're so grateful to you for sharing that because now you come 
to, you know, epilepsy research and your studies and your education, understanding both sides of the coin. How has being an epilepsy patient affected your work? Oh, it certainly impacts everything I do on a on a daily basis. There's there's more passion, uh, you know. I, again, I I feel very fortunate uh, with my my epilepsy to be well controlled. It, you know. But that being said, there isn't a day that goes by I don't think about it. I don't think about you know how unstable the situation could become you know, you know, overnight. So, you know, and I, I hear the stories, I uh, talk to the people and I say, we've got to do better for them. We, we need to continue the push forward and not let the pressure off. Getting back to your history within the epilepsy community in your 40 plus years of time, what do you think that the, the epilepsy community has done incredibly well. What are what are some of the things that you've been a part of that, that you're particularly proud of? I look back over the course of my time in Utah and now in Washington and the time that I spent with Cure, you know, and as it relates to particular projects, um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of, of the advances that we were able to make in the screening program at Utah um, through a, a committed staff and, and our colleagues there that continue today. Um, my time with Cure, um, you know, I, I have to say having the opportunity to launch the infantile spasms initiative and bring together a group of eight very talented investigative teams to um, try and tackle a problem in a new way through team science and collaborative team science and uh, letting the science really drive the, the direction of the research. And then that sort of parlayed into the the post-traumatic epilepsy initiative, which you know I'm I'm delighted to see continues today, and some strong teams of investigators there that are advancing um, in our understanding of post-traumatic epilepsy and and potentially identifying treatments and cures for that. Conversely, what should we be focusing on and and working on? You know, what we have done really well as a community is advance the science around um, the basic understanding of how seizures begin, how they stop, um, the pharmacology of, of the treatments we have available, but also innovative new treatments. And we've done really well at bringing younger investigators into the community to advance our scientific understanding. In some ways, I think our science is outpacing our ability to translate these findings to the patient community. And I wish there were a way to advance uh, in a more timely way some of the findings at the bench, you know, to new therapies at the bedside. Um, and, and I guess what I mean by that is 
at least in preclinical models and rodent models, we have a number of therapies that show significant promise as disease-modifying drugs and curative treatments. But the ability to translate that at the clinical trials and get those trials running you know, quickly and efficiently in the right patient population, I think, is an area we could use some help with. And, and I realize that these are not inexpensive studies to do. It takes a lot of resources to do. But that, I think, is my biggest frustration, is seeing all of this great science that someday will make, make its way to the clinic. But I guess I'm just a little eager for it to happen faster. <laughs> I think that we all are. But it's, you know, I take from that great hope and promise that there is the basic science there. And then all we need is that money to fund this translational research, which is actually something that I know that Cure Epilepsy is, is starting to fund a little bit more of this type of research so that hopefully we can speed up those treatments and, and find potential cures. I guess, you know, along those lines, is it one cure that we're looking for or is it more accurate to say cures? No, I think it's more accurate to say cures multiple cures, but it may be too early to to make a judgment on that too. Uh, I think once we have that very first successful and a highly successful therapy that cures or modifies or halts the progression of a particular epilepsy, that is going to provide us incredible insight into how to do the next study and how to tackle the next one. Now, it may very well be that that therapy, because of similar sort of underlying mechanisms and other epilepsies, is more generalizable to different epilepsies. Um, but I think a cure for genetic epilepsy is going to be different than a cure for post-traumatic epilepsy or or tumor-induced epilepsy, or infection-induced epilepsy. But we need that first one because that's going to be our, our roadmap to, to more success. We cannot wait to celebrate that for sure. Thank you so, so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for your four decades of commitment to the epilepsy community and for your help in all that you've done in the many hats you've worn with Cure Epilepsy. We're just so grateful for your contributions. Kelly, thank you so much. It's been my honor, and um, I look forward to many, many more years together. And it's been a real honor to work with, with Cure and, and all of my colleagues over the years. Thank you, Dr. White, for sharing your knowledge, insights, and personal epilepsy story. As Dr. White's journey makes clear, epilepsy research has made significant progress during the past four decades. We have greatly enhanced our knowledge of epilepsy and the mechanisms behind seizures and discovered new treatments that have improved the lives of people with epilepsy. But with nearly one third of patients unable to gain seizure control, we still have a long way to go to unlock the mysteries of epilepsy and discover new treatments. Those discoveries will only come through research. 
We ask you to help Cure Epilepsy fund this vital research by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Cure Epilepsy. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. Cure Epilepsy strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical conditions be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.